What comes to mind when I say the words, it is the power of Christ that compels you. It is the power of Christ that compels you. You might think, I've heard that somewhere. There's one of two real possibilities. One is that you heard it in a horror movie that you watched when you were about 12 because your friends were watching it and then it gave you nightmares for like three or four months and you wished you hadn't watched it. You know the one I'm talking about, The Exorcist. It was a 70s horror movie. It was, it was based on this insanely popular book by the same name, by William Peter Blatty. I mean, my, my most successful book was about demon possession and exorcism and the power of Christ, but it doesn't even hold a candle to, like, another candle that holds a bigger candle to the popularity of The Exorcist. Everyone was talking about it. And one of the most iconic scenes in the movie was with the two priests, Father Damien and the, the older guy, I don't remember his name, they're in the room of Reagan, this little girl who's, who's demonized, and uh, they're, they're in the midst of the, the rite of exorcism, and she begins to like levitate up off the bed. And they're taken aback, Natch, and, and they begin to shout, it is the power of Christ that compels you, it is the power of Christ that compels you. And now maybe you didn't see that movie, good call. But that still sort of rings a bell. And if that's the case, it's probably because it sort of has entered into pop culture, this, this phrase. I don't know if you saw Austin Powers. Yes, I know we as a culture kind of agreed we were going to forget about Austin Powers, but we sort of remember Austin Powers. And it was that scene where Dr. Evil, the villain, just wanted a rotating chair that he could control with a joystick. Is that too much to ask? And, and it started moving, and it was moving all by itself, and, and he acted like it was possessed and began to shout, it is the power of Christ that compels you to his chair. Har har. It was on the family guy at one point. It's been on t-shirts. There's even a Facebook page called Saying It is the Power of Christ that Compels You to Children Having a Temper Tantrum. And there's like hundreds of people who have liked it. And when something like this enters into the, the pop culture public mindset, it's often a cause for concern from my point of view. First of all, with something like this, there's the concern of taking Christ's name in vain for nothing, for a, for a chuckle. But also the, the way that it entered into the, the kind of collective understanding is kind of scoffing, joking. The idea that pff, Christ has power. Christ has more power than the powers of darkness, than the, the demonic powers, the principalities and, and powers of this age, when Scripture, in fact, tells us that Christ has far more power than anything going on in this world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. We see throughout the New Testament, with or without this phrase, the power of Christ compels you, that Christ's power causes demons to flee at the very sound of his name. That Christ is far more powerful than anything that Satan may cook up, any weapon formed against us. And while the Scriptures make it clear that it is the power of Christ that compels even devils to flee, it is something else that compels we believers, those of us who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And we find this here in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. It is the love of Christ that compels us. Now, as I was looking at this passage, I began to look at different translations. I found it very interesting the way they differ. They almost seem to be at odds with each other sometimes. In this very little nuanced way. That the NIV and several other translations say the love of Christ compels us. But if you look at the King James, it says the love of Christ 
constraineth us. Constrains. Constrains, of course, from the old French, meaning to bind tightly together, to limit or restrain. And those two seem kind of like opposites, right? Compels is like, get going, come on, move. Constrain is like, oh, you're not going anywhere. And yet these two words translate the same Greek verb. And neither of them is is wrong. And many other translations, including the, the English standard, say the love of Christ controls us. And while that's certainly not wrong, I don't know about that for a translation, I wouldn't be talking to my unbelieving friends saying, you know, Jesus loves you very much, and he just wants to use that love to um, control you. That, that sounds a little bit iffy. But again, that one's not wrong either. And, and you know, you look at this word, in the Greek it's suneko, and, and it means to encircle or surround, most simply. To, to hold together. But like any word, it has a field of different meanings, and it kind of evolves over time. And, and, and so it begins by meaning kind of to hem in, to limit, and then it means to guard, like to guard a prisoner. And you can see how then we would say constrain or control. But then it, it comes to mean to urge on or impel, to, to compel, to constrain, to control. All of these ideas kind of work together in concert to show us what it is that Christ's love does in us and for us. Now, last October, I was reading my uh, morning and evening. If you, by the way, don't have a great devotional that you read or the one that you're reading is starting to seem you know, like less like bread and more like a crouton, I recommend getting a hold of Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. You can get it online for free. You can get it anywhere. It's public domain, and it is amazing. And I was reading Spurgeon, just you know, sitting there enjoying the Spurge and, and prayerfully reflecting. And, and he, he was writing on this very verse. In fact, this very phrase, the love of Christ compels us. And he said this, How much owest thou unto my Lord? Has he ever done anything for thee? Has he forgiven thy sins? Has he covered thee with a robe of righteousness? Has he set thy feet upon a rock? Has he established thy goings? Has he prepared heaven for thee? Has he prepared thee for heaven? Has he written thy name in his book of life? Has he given thee countless blessings? Has he laid up for thee a store of mercies which I have not seen nor ear heard? Then do something for Jesus worthy of his love. And in my mind, I heard, wait a minute. And I stopped and thought, Spurgeon, what are you doing? Do something worthy of his love. And it stopped me because the gospel is all about how we are unworthy of his love. And regardless of that, he came and he, he reached down and he touched us and he, and he healed us and he made us by his blood, by his grace, through our faith to be worthy to be worthy, which Paul says here in this very passage. And so we've been reading for weeks about this distinction between the letter of the law and the spirit, between the law that says do, do, and gospel, which says done, between human religion and the true religion that God has revealed from heaven, the faith once for all handed down to the saints, which here in verse 14, he, he sums up as one has died for all, therefore all has died. We've died in Christ and we're raised to new life with Christ. By Christ's death, the death penalty for sins that should have been yours and mine has been paid for all who trust in him. 
And because of that, then we no longer have this understanding of religion or spirituality that I'm kind of incrementally trying to get closer and closer to fellowship with my Creator, recognizing it's already accomplished. This is such a radical change. It's not even going from the stick to the carrot. I've heard that description before. You know, the religion of the stick says, do, 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 or you're going to get it. And the religion of the carrot says, if you don't do, 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 you're not going to get it. But the gospel says, in Christ, you've already got it. If you will lay hold to it, if you will simply call out his name, new life is yours. It is already attained by the blood of Jesus. And so when I read Spurgeon, who's one of the guys who taught me this, even though he's been dead for a hundred and some years, it kind of stuck in my craw. Do something for Jesus worthy of his love, as if that was somehow works-driven. You gotta do something to justify that he justified you. And then I stopped and I thought about it. And I read it over again and again and it it occurred to me I was falling into a trap. A trap that many even of Paul's readers fell into because he would say, what then shall we say? Like we're accused of saying, let us go on sinning that grace may abound. What then shall we? He kept on saying, what then? Because people were assuming that this free gift of of God came, you had grabbed it, and then that was it. Go on living as if nothing had happened. You can't miss the therefore. And I know when we, when we say this corny thing, I'm usually talking about context, right? When, I, when we get to a therefore in the Bible and I say, ask the question, What's the therefore? Love it. Love it. Love your energy. Usually it's like, you don't, we want to understand this passage correctly, but it's also important for our theology and it's important for how we live because here's how the Bible's set up. What Christ did for us, therefore... How we should live. Every book of the New Testament is set up that way. Every book. Even even in the Gospels, at the end of the Gospel, what is the Great Commission? How does it start? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. How? Because I died and rose again. I defeated death, sin, and Satan. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's always what is done, therefore what we should do. Not what we do, therefore what we get but the other way around. What was done for us, therefore what we should do. And that's what Spurgeon was doing here. All of this stuff God has done for us, therefore do something worthy of his love. Paul is doing the same thing. Back up in verse 9, he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We're not accepted because we please him, but because we're accepted, we make it our aim to please him. Therefore, Do something worthy of his love. See, the gospel is not about you've received this and you used to be compelled by the law, the letter of the law. Do, do, do. And now you received it and so you're not compelled by anything anymore. Sit back, put your feet up, maybe click, you know, like on a little thing about Jesus or type amen and and you're all set. No, the, the, the difference is not that we were compelled and now we're not anymore but it's that we're not compelled by the letter of the law, which brings death. Rather, we're compelled by the Spirit, which brings life. We're not compelled by do, do, do. We're compelled by done. What Christ has done for us. We're not compelled by the law. We're compelled by the gospel, but we are compelled. We're compelled by what Christ did for us. We're compelled by his cross. We're compelled by his blood. So yes, do something worthy of his love. Don't just be a recipient of God's love. Be a conduit. 
This is, this is what he goes on to say in that devotional. Do something worthy of Jesus' love. Give not a mere worldly offering to a dying Redeemer. How will you feel when your master comes if you have to confess that you did nothing for him but kept your love shut up like a stagnant pool, neither flowing forth to his poor or to his work? Out on such love as that. What do men think of a love that will never show itself in action? Who will accept a love so weak that it does not actuate you to a single deed of self-denial or generosity or heroism or zeal? Think how he has loved you and given himself for you. Do you know the power of that love? Then let it be like a rushing mighty wind to your soul to sweep out the clouds of your worldliness and clear away the mists of sin." Don't be just a recipient of God's love. Be a conduit, a channel of it. The world doesn't need puddles. It needs pipelines bringing God's love to bear. In fact, Paul was so into this, understanding that that love is is action, and some preachers will, will falsely say that every time the word love is used in the Bible, it's a verb, and that's not even close to true. It's often a noun. But even when it's a noun, there's action in view. And Paul was so wrapped up in this idea that he was accused of being bonkers. In fact, did you see that in, in, in verse 11? If we are out of our minds or if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are sober, it is for you. He, he was accused by his opponents of being a fanatic because he understood that the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It constrains us. Scripture tells us that's what love is. It it does. It compels you to do. It it can't be be shut up, like Spurgeon said, shut up inside of you. It's not love at that point. Scripture says better is open rebuke than secret love. If you you stand back and say, I I love that person, but I'm not going to say anything, do anything. No, I'm just going to stand back. It'd be better if you walked up and began to rebuke them. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Think about the stories of people who, who oh, I've really, I love that, that woman, but I can't get up the nerve. I can't talk to her. I'm never going to talk to her. I'm never going to do anything for her. But, oh, it's real love. No, it's not. It's actually on the verge of being something sort of creepy, an obsession. Love is action. It's not a feeling that's shut up in the, the cockles of your heart or, or deeper in the subcockle region. It is action. Action. It compels action. You know, sadly, I've done funerals of some people. I've done many funerals of people I didn't know in life or I knew just a tiny little bit. And, and I'll say, tell me about this person. And I've had a couple times people have said, well, you know, he, he never said he loved us. And honestly, he never, you know, he, he wasn't like that kind of guy. He went out and showed his love. But I know he really loved us. And obviously I don't say this, but I'm thinking, no, he didn't. Love is action. Love compels action. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It's all love doing things. I get out of breath just reading the thing. It's so full of action. Some people, they say they love each other. They just tolerate one another. Now you do your thing, I'll do my thing. That's our version of love. You know, John Calvin has been accused of this. And I I simply can't bear to let him be accused of such things. But his, his wife... Calvin was a nerd, and he was not a very 
romantic or emotional guy. The way that he wound up together with his wife was, it was like the, the 16th century version of eHarmony before it was mainstream and cool. And, and he came together with her because they kind of lined up on things. And it's often by people who don't like Calvin, uh, this little quote is pulled out and used to, to, to bash him. That the day that his wife died, he wrote a letter to a friend. And in that letter, he said, from her, his wife, from her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. And it's, it's brought up and people say, that's the best he can do. His wife just died and he's, and he's writing kind of a eulogy to a friend of his. And, and all he can say is, she never hindered me. She stayed out of my way. She, she let me do what I wanted to do. Sadly, that's how many people love God, right? Well, I said a prayer. I Asked him into my heart. I did whatever cliche the church has started using for, for salvation. And, and then, it's great. He doesn't seem to constrain me. He doesn't seem to compel me. He's, he's not controlling at all. I do what I want. He does what he wants. I don't go in his house. He doesn't come in my house. And everybody's happy. That is not love. Not by a long shot. By the way, Calvin actually did love his wife very much. If you look at the context of that quote, he, he wrote, Mine is no common grief. I have been bereaved of the best friend of my life, of one who, had it been so ordered, would not only have been the willing sharer of my poverty, but even of my death. During her life, she was the most faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. This guy loved his wife, and, and then you realize he married her when she was a widow. She was a single mom, and he, he did not like kids. You see a picture of the guy, you can tell. This is not a guy who's all excited to bring the kids to the Wiggles concert and like joking around with them. But when she was dying, he said, do not worry, I will care for your kids as if they were my own, which was not a foregone conclusion back then. But he, he was willing to, he was compelled by love to do that. He, he was willing to be constrained by love. Love makes us do some crazy things, doesn't it? Just look, at, look at somebody like Jacob, who had to work 14 years for the love of his life. I mean, we assume it was love at first sight and everything, but then he had to work 14 years to actually have her uh, for a bride. Seven years, you know, for Leah, and he was like, eh. and then seven more for Rachel. 14 in total. Now, do you imagine that a man who, who would work that much for the love of his life was then kind of cold to her afterward? Like, it's our anniversary. I got you something, Jacob. Yeah, I got you something too. It's called 14 years of hard labor. Get me the same thing next year. Right? I've already got you. I've already got your love. No, no. Someone who's willing to put in that much is invested and wants to keep giving, wants to keep doing things that are worthy of such a love. And we who already have attained God's love by no merit of our own, but only by His grace, will be compelled by it. Will be different because of it. Let me ask you this. What will you do today, or this week, or next week, that you're only doing because you're being compelled by the love of Christ in you? It's compelling you. It's urging you on. It's impelling you. What are you going to do for Christ Worthy of his love. Perhaps he's, he's compelling you and pushing you out of something like Christ taking that whip and compelling all of the animals and money changers out of the temple courts. Compelling you out of selfishness. Out of your comfort zone. Out of the laziness of the flesh. What is God compelling you to do? And what are you resisting? 
compelling you to seek Him and find Him and make Him known. Verse 11, as he's talking about this stuff, Paul says, we persuade. That's a major thing that he does because he's compelled by the love of God. And this has been connected to this passage for, for centuries, for ages. John Getty, a pioneer Canadian missionary to the, the New Hebrides Islands, when he arrived was shocked by the brutality, the violence, the, the bloodshed going on. And, and beyond that, the wickedness and fornication that was out in, in plain sight. And he was tempted for a moment to just give up and leave. But then he wrote these words, the love of Christ sustains us and constrains us. My heart pants to tell this miserable people the wonders of redeeming love. They were miserable because they were in bondage to sin. And he said, I can't leave them there. I'm compelled by the love of Christ to share it. John Wesley wrote these words, beautiful words. The love of Christ doth me constrain to seek the wandering souls of men with cries, entreaties, tears to save, to snatch them from the gaping grave. If we are believers, the love of Christ is compelling us to make that very love known. And it's constraining us, even restraining us. Yes, there are things that in the flesh, even though we're born again, we would do but for the love of Christ in us, constraining us. Things that the world around us says, ah, do it, no big deal. Even the church has started to say, eh, maybe it's okay. And inside the love of Christ is saying, no, have you seen the love that I have shown, the blood shed on the tree? And the love of Christ constrains us. The world has invented a new Jesus that never restrains, never constrains, never holds us back. Lent is a wonderful time to remember anew that the love of Christ constrains us. Our lives look totally different because the love of Christ, yes, controls us in the sense that it gives us new desires, new appetites. We, we, are, we are no longer in bondage to sin. Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Not just zealous for good doctrine. Now we got all the facts right. But zealous for good works. Where are the poor so we can feed them and clothe them? Where are the lost so we can proclaim the gospel to them? I'm compelled. Reminds us of the prophet saying, your word is shut up in my bones like a fire and I'm going to explode if I do not preach what you have given me to proclaim. What, what in your life, today or tomorrow or this week or next week, would you do and maybe you're thinking, oh, maybe I will, but you will not because the love of Christ is constraining you and holding you back like a mother holding her child back from throwing himself under the train tracks because for whatever reason, toddlers are a little suicidal and you've got to hold them back sometimes. What is it that God is holding you back from doing? Yes, the power of Christ compels. And even the devils flee. But as Christians, it's the love of Christ that compels us and constrains us and controls us. And remember again, that word ultimately means to encircle. And the control is not, you're going to do this. 
It's that parental encircling. It sounds a little bit like a hug to me, not to get too touchy-feely. This is what we need. And deep down, because God created us with this desire, this is what we want. And we are compelled and controlled and constrained, not by the letter of the law, not by the threat of judgment or even the promise of reward, but by the love of Christ. Therefore, let us go out and do something worthy of His love. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love. And we thank You that it does not simply dwell in us, but flows through us. Lord, may we be not puddles, but pipelines. Not just recipients, but conduits of Your love. May we be compelled by it. Lord, to the point where maybe the world will look at us and just as the the super apostles did in Corinth, they might say, these are fanatics. These people are out of their minds, beside themselves. Lord, we're okay with it. We want to be the people who receive your love and are compelled to be like Christ. Lord, we pray that that would be what happens in us, what we seek after and what we attain throughout the rest of this season of Lent. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.